Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, along with Chantel Robitaille and Alyssa Clark. And we are excited to welcome a fascinating guest on the podcast today, Brandon Joy. Brandon has been coached by Chantel for nearly four years and recently returned from the Scandinavian Arctic Traverse, which is a traverse spanning 985 miles, not not 1,000, 985, using skis, a snow kite, and a kayak. He, he did this adventure t- completely solo and designed the route himself, and we're here to dig into his preparation and experiences on the trip. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve, for having me. So, Chantel, well, actually, Brendan, just other than that introduction, like, what what would you like to tell people about yourself? Like, how do you go about introducing yourself? Like, uh, you know, I mean, let's let's skip the uh, what do you do for work kind of thing. Like, how do you describe yourself? Yeah, I think when I talk to other people that don't know me, I tend to really gloss over a lot of the things that I do because I don't really identify as like anything in particular, an ultra runner or a climber or a skier. I feel like very, uh, I have skills in a lot of these different areas, but I'm not like, I don't primarily focus on any of them. So I think I really try to get into more of the endurance side of things and just spending time moving in the mountains. I think that's easier to connect with in general. And if I start just talking about the Scandinavia trip or some other things that I do, people tend to get a little bit confused. (laughs) (laughs) Chantel, like you've been coaching Brandon for a long time and, you know, we all know that after that much time, a coach knows their athlete better than they sometimes know themselves. <laughs> what? How would you introduce Brandon to someone, as I'm sure you've done? Wow. Well, Brandon to me is the most uh, diverse athlete that I've ever worked with. And when I started working with Brandon way back in 2020, uh, Brandon was preparing for a running race in, was it in Mexico, Brandon? That race yes. you were preparing for? He was preparing for a running race in Mexico and wanting to get faster. And he was doing the typical, you know, stuff you can get away with in your early 20s, you know, just beasting yourself every time you went out and then uh, getting a little frustrated because he wasn't getting any faster. But uh, even though he was, you know, in his tw- in his 20s and able to get away with a lot of stuff, he was really uh, had a real sense of maturity about him and he just would soak up and listen to anything that I said. So if I told him to do something, he'd go do it. And it would be exactly the way I asked him to go do it, uh, which was a lot of fun. And so I started coaching this runner who all of a sudden starts telling me about these other crazy things that he's scheming up. So I felt like a little, like I, he pulled the wool over my eyes in the beginning uh, with the, with the real goals that he had, but it's been really fun to watch him develop over time, uh, from, you know, planning to do this, just this running race in Mexico to, um, doing the Bob Marshall open, which he's done twice, which is, um, a wild, uh, 90 mile unsupported, 
traverse. I can't even say route. It's a traverse of the Bob Marshall wilderness in Montana. Um, you figure out how you're going to get across it, but it's, there's no trail. Um, so he's done that twice now. He also then dreamed up this, um, this project uh, that he called the Montana top 50. And so he researched the top 50 peaks in Montana and um, summited them all completely solo and unsupported. And before that, set his caches. Uh, and that was about 80 miles on foot. Um, so it's, you know, he he just dreams up all these really um, amazing things. And those are just some of the small ones. But he's meticulous with planning. Um, he's an environmental engineer by trade. So I think he comes by it pretty honestly. He's um, really organized. He can somehow handle being by himself for a long time. But at the same time, He's also uh, just a really fun person to to talk to. He's he's a, a pretty deep thinker. He's a, a great cook. I will say that he's made us lots of great meals when he, whenever he's visited, and uh, has a pretty fun uh, sense of humor that I think carries him a long way in these solo adventures that he does. So I'm excited for more of you to get to know him a little bit uh, the way that I do. Great. So Brendan, uh, you, you lit up a little bit when she mentioned cooking, what, what sort of things, what's your best dish? Oh, I feel like I have a lot, but it's gotta be that I have, salmon. I got, it's gotta be the salmon. What's the I, salmon? Tell me about the salmon. I want to know. It's a, it's a creamy Tuscany salmon. I don't know the proper name of the dish, something along those lines. I call it salmon gumbo because it has a base of heavy, heavy cream and wilted then you simmer that with some wilted spinach and bunch fresh garlic and sauteed onions and mushrooms and you saute the salmon separately and then combine it all at the end with some rice and then it's it's kind of a wet salmon dish and it's pretty phenomenal some fresh cherry tomatoes as well so good wow that sounds amazing that sounds amazing i mean you had me at heavy cream but (laughs) (laughs) yeah that sounds great wow um it's interesting how you know i find that uh, there's a lot of introverts out there that are really good cooks (laughs) does that describe (laughs) you brennan yeah i i don't know one thing i've kind of contemplated over the years is if i'm more introverted or extroverted i feel as if i'm a bit of a hybrid I think I can I can excel and and get a lot of energy from social interactions, but I also definitely need time by myself. I don't lean one way hard or the other, but mm-hmm. the cooking has always been a, a big part of my life, and and just eating well, and especially as as train as I'm more focused and serious about training, I think I'm more serious and focused about just eating high quality food and eating things that I want to enjoy. Yeah. First of all, I can relate to the introvert extrovert. I think, I don't know if it's introvertedness. It's more just the ability. It's like the space to really discover yourself and who you are and to give yourself time to think. Um, I always think of it as, as that because I do a lot solo as well. And I did actually, I think later on want to dig into how you managed the soloness of this journey. Cause that is a long time to be by yourself. Um, but I, 
really quickly, I'm curious, how did you take this love of cooking and how do you apply it to a longer trip? Um, like what were your <laughs> strategies for that? That's probably, sorry, I'm opening can of worms, but I guess just quickly and then we can go back. We should have a whole podcast on, we could have a whole past podcast on what people eat. It would be fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, we are. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good question. And when people ask me what I ate, for example, on the Scandinavia trip, I just preface it by saying that my journey in the food that I ate was not a culinary experience. The, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend my diet to anyone, nor would I be at all excited about having those types of meals when I'm back in the U.S. or wherever I am in society. I think, and that was also the first big trip that I did where I didn't have precise control over my food and, and nutrition intake like I did, as Chantel mentioned, the 50 peaks. I, I set caches and each cache had 20 to 25,000 calories of very specific food that I knew I could find here or I could order online. Cliff bars, goo gels, you know, my favorite assortment of candies, you name it. Whereas, and even the Bob Marshall trips, or um, I also did a traverse of ski traverse of Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Park a couple of years ago, which inspired this trip. And all of those trips, I had full control over the food. And I would either bring everything with me from the start or have caches. In the, in the ski trip, I, it would have been way too expensive to mail everything to myself to, to like strategic locations along the way and hope the hotels got it. And there wasn't translation issues. And there were so many resupply spots that it just made sense to resupply at grocery stores. So I looked on Google maps and on, on the left-hand side, when you click on a grocery store, it'll sh show you the photos that whatever strange people decided to take photos and post it online of like the fruit section or the rice aisle. I have no idea, but I assume that they'd have enough resupply more than bananas and sardines for me to be able to, to, to load up on. And that was the case. So I was always, I don't want to say a victim of whatever the grocery store had to offer. And, and I just had to be creative and everything was also in different languages so sometimes I'd have to, I didn't know if I was holding a bag of oatmeal or flour and I had to walk around and ask people in the grocery store, like, Hey, sorry, I don't speak Swedish, but, uh, what is this? Can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, that was kind of the approach to the food. And I, I tried to make it as enjoyable as I could and also focusing on just getting as many calories in as I could and in, in the cold climate. Let's talk about that for a second. I want to hear what what was your daily like? I mean, this is a, a thousand miles. You're you're pulling like paint a picture. What what do we see when we see Brennan out there in the middle of the white great whiteness of the Scandinavian <laughs> Arctic, you know, last winter? What what would we see? What if we were flying over you, what would it look like? Yeah, I think the day-to-day -day in general was Waking up, uh, it was very cold, usually. Towards the end, it got a lot warmer, and I had some issues with that and snow melt. But for the most part, it was just wake up, turn on the stove, start melting snow, have some coffee, 
eat oatmeal was my staple breakfast with an assortment of dried fruit. And I put in, I got protein powder along the way and some other things I could sprinkle in, nuts or seeds and whatnot. And then I would pack up camp, pack the sled, and then mostly walk. I think 80%, 80% of the miles covered was just skinning, skiing. So it was mostly mostly that and move throughout the day and get to camp, get to a good place to set up camp in the evening as it got dark or whenever I thought it was a good time and then repeat the process in the opposite manner from the morning. Uh, just, I guess it's very similar actually, but set up camp, melt snow, get in the tent, try and stay warm and then go to sleep soon after. And what does it, what, what is the environment like? Are you, were you on snow the whole time? You say cold. What are you talking about? Very cold. Are we talking about, you know, 12 degrees Fahrenheit? Are we talking about minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit? What, give us some context. Yeah, the, I planned the trip for worst case scenario. With these types of trips, you have to go in expecting it's going to be the coldest it could possibly be or else you're going to have a bad time or you're not going to come home. So I set the threshold with the Yellowstone trip and also this trip as just negative 40 Fahrenheit or also negative 40 Celsius to just be, be the foundation for the equipment that I would bring. And in the beginning of the trip, I started in early March, uh, after, right after I got back from Antarctica it was a super fast transition, and I flew to Norway. And the, in the, I think it got down to about uh, ambient temperature, negative 15, but it was also windy, so wind chill, maybe negative 25 uh, for a few days, few nights. And that was pretty taxing just to be out there for that long and still have to go through the the daily routine. And as you all know, it's just general stove operation and setting up a tent and dealing with a lighter, um, dealing with ski bindings. There's a lot of finicky things that require finesse with your, with your motor function that you can't do with Sasquatch gloves on. And, and so the, the cold eventually turned to be a lot warmer and towards the end of the trip, it started to get above freezing during the day, especially with the solar radiation. The snow was getting softer and spring came early to the north. I think if there's a spectrum of, of like a record spring, early spring, and also like a record late spring, early and late spring, this was leaned more towards the early spring spectrum. And I also was traversing such a large distance that certain areas that I was going through and I would talk to locals, they would say, oh, this is the most snow we've had in like 10 years. This is crazy. And then I'd get another hundred miles and they'd say, wow, there was a big warm spell. And this is the least amount of snow we've seen here in the last 10 years. So there was a lot of geographic fluctuation with how the climate was impacting the snow conditions. Mm -hmm. And so two thirds of the way through the trip, the snow really started getting above freezing during the day. And so I started traveling at night 
And at that point, it was almost 24 hours daylight. There's only a few nights of headlamp requirement, I would say. And then the last big section I did on skis was 180 miles between resupply locations. And the snow was, it was, it turned into, I would say, dire straits and a self-evac situation when you're, I thought it was hard to, I thought the whole, the whole concept of doing this in winter was like ridiculous enough. Right. I think Everett Chantel. Yeah, we we and, all agree with you on that. Yeah. 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 On yeah. test. I, I think that no one disagreed with that and no one told me anything of the opposite opinion before I left. What I didn't imagine and what I didn't expect was for the snow to melt and for me to be having to deal with melting lakes and open rivers and really soft snow and crazy snow glop on the skins and my sled trenching behind me like an anchor. And so the snowpack just went isothermal and kind of collapsed on you. It just wasn't supportive anymore. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And, or it was just gone. Or it was just gone. Yeah. The last most, which is almost better actually. Right. (laughs) Well, not when you're dragging a sled. Yeah. The, I would say it's very mixed. And you're on skis. Yeah. 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 The, they're the last most of the last couple of weeks that I was on skis. It was either dry ground or it was, say, two feet, two and a half feet deep of just pure slush. The top six inches would look like it looks like snow, but then I'm just sinking down like a foot with my skis, yeah, and it's, it's just wet. And so I take off my skis, and then I'm just in alpine ski boots, and the bo- the bottom half of that depth was just water. So yeah. my ski boots are getting flooded and I'm, it's just two and a half feet deep of slush and it's pushing forward and like against my hips and my sleds behind me. So depending on what type of tundra or rocky terrain there was in that area, or if it was grassy, it was, it was more efficient just to tr- put my skis on my back or on my sled and drag my sled across the tundra. Yeah, I've done some of this kind of maneuvers in, you know, late winter, early spring mountaineering in canada and uh i'm sure you crawled right did you try the crawl technique where you like get your you know surface area out as far as you can and try to shimmy across wow i didn't even cross my mind i would have <laughs> i felt like i would have been swimming if that was the case i did not <laughs> try to distribute your, your weight and not go into the actual the, that slushy wet water underneath all that that's the worst yeah, but also, were you dragging a sled as well? No, I never had a sled. You know, I was, but we did uh, sometimes take our backpacks off and drag them behind us because mm-hmm. the, to distribute the weight away from our bodies. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be a lot more practical if there was not a hundred pound sled behind me. Yeah, and I was also saying, like, I mean, totally different scenario, right? I was also going downhill because we'd been up and climbed something oh, yeah. going back, so I wasn't like trying to make distance and you know, you're the different scenario. But. I was actually going to ask what, it, what does the terrain actually look like? Is it pretty flat or is it undulating yeah, mountainous? Question. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things about the trip and one of the reasons that I gravitated towards it was because it was so diverse. Most of the trips that I've done are, siloed in one 
type of terrain if it's alpine or forest or not i haven't really done much of any water stuff but i could assume that would also be the same um in terms of just being isolated to that type of area where this went it started on the ocean and then it went up into the mountains and then there was a fluctuation in and between forests like dense forest and sparse forests and the, I went through the largest mountain range in Sweden, and there was a lot of mountains along the way. I tried to stay down low in the valleys. I, I, it wasn't really a trip to be doing a bunch of ski mountaineering, and I didn't really have time for that. So I tried to make it as, as minimal topographic change as possible and then there was also the tundra the second half of the trip was mo- i would say predominantly tundra and i thought it was going to be a lot flatter like i i had this visual and looking at topo maps just like oh it's flat but you get there and it's just continuously going up and down you can never get a good vantage point where the snow is melting and i would want to see where i wanted to go through the labyrinths of snow veins but it just, I could get up a little bit and see like a hundred yards. And then eventually it ended back at the ocean as well. So what brought you to these ultra endurance? I mean, I guess we can call, I I actually like to categorize it as ultra adventure because I don't think this is a real endurance event as much as an adventure event. What, what draw you to these? What draws you to this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it was really a natural progression in my life over a large number of years. I never envisioned myself doing these types of things. And when I was in high school, I had like a standard like childhood, like playing soccer growing up and doing cross country and track in high school. But I barely made the junior varsity team for racing 5Ks when I was a senior. So I I wasn't some like genetic prodigy or really felt like a a lot of, I don't want to call it ego, but like I, I didn't get a lot of like validation from really excelling at this. And so I would continue on that trend. A lot of these things just came up naturally in my life. And I, I found particularly in difficult during difficult periods of my life solace in movement and it helped me to work through some challenging challenging times I would say and during college I started doing triathlons and I I my first triathlon was a half Ironman and I didn't know how to swim at the time and I was just like watching YouTube videos and eventually did it and i thought i was going to drown and it was terrifying but the that was that was a big first event and then eventually worked my way up to a full ironman i think the next year again very like average or below average for uh males in those races but i just really found the process of training and moving to be exciting And I was going to school in Montana or university and there's all types of things to do there. So I started mountain biking and doing a bit of trail running and climbing and backpacking and doing some winter stuff, but none of it was ever to, with this vision of combining it all together in these kind of heroic, like multi-month trips. 
And it wasn't until COVID actually that that changed. And as Chantel mentioned, when we started working together, I was very race focused. I had done some some climbing and was interested in pushing the boundaries of say like lower technicality or I don't know, moderate technicality mountain efforts with say like scrambling, but also endurance and also ultras and with the, with definite, a definite primary focus on ultras themselves and trail running. And at some point COVID happened out of the blue and all my races were extinguished one by one. And I think for a lot of people, COVID had, you know, COVID was a really terrible thing in general and a lot of people got sick and a lot of people died but i think it forced our society to invest more time into themselves and to take on new hobbies or to think outside of the box to try to not go crazy and when the races were canceled one by one at some point i just got fed up with it and i said I just want to do my own thing and I don't want any permits, no gathering group restrictions, nothing out of state, no support. I just want to do this totally on my own and no one can stop me. And that's where the, the concept of the 50 peaks thing came into place. And so, yeah, go on. Yeah. I just want to want to stop you there because I don't know if I should ask you this or Chantel this, but maybe Chantel would, should start with you. Like, how do you go about coaching for this an event like an ultra adventure? Well, there's just a lot more that goes into it, right? If you're doing a race, you pay your money, right? You show you you get up, you get a map, you get the course that you can download onto your watch in advance. You know that there's going to be aid stations every, however, I mean, could be every five, it could be every 20 miles. And um, you go and you do the thing, right? You train for it, you prepare. When it's just a blank slate, you have to do all of that stuff yourself. Like Brandon had to figure out the route. He had to research the criteria to determine the top 50 peaks of Montana. He had to map it all out. He had to, he spent Oh my gosh, if we, only we had tallied it up, Brandon, but had to figure out, you know, um, what some of these peaks, and some of these peaks had no names. They were just numbers. No one, and, and he's scouring the internet to see, has any, is there any beta? Has anyone climbed these before? And a lot of them had no record of anyone climbing them. So he really didn't know what he was going to experience out there. We also had to um, spend a lot of time preparing what he was going to eat. So we worked out how many calories he was going to need per day to calculate uh, what where each cache should be and how much food should be contained there. And then because Brandon is Brandon, he wanted to do all of this on foot. So all those caches, 80 miles or so worth, that was all done on foot before he actually started the, the project. Um, had to introduce Brandon to the Garmin inReach because I was terrified of him being out in that kind of grizzly country by himself, as were his parents. Um, so got a Garmin inReach and had to figure out how to use that, help his parents understand how they could track him um, and, and check in with one another. So there's just so many 
uh, small little things that you have to think about in terms of what is it going to look like. And also thinking about like what can go wrong and trying to pre-prepare for all of those things and pre-prepare for the different skills Brandon was going to have to use on this trip. So obviously hiking, moving pretty slowly and deliberately, gear selection, like he couldn't carry five different types of shoes, right? So he had to choose shoes that he could move around in, but also climb in. He had to practice different types of climbing for what he might encounter as well. So it was a lot more uh, logistical in terms of planning, but also logistical in terms of training to make sure that he was prepared for the different um, types of things that he was going to encounter out there. Okay, but so you talked a lot about like all the logistics and the prep and stuff, but in terms of the the training, like the the workouts and the nitty gritty of the day to day, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're digging around on the internet, you don't just need to wear your heart rate monitor, at least I don't think, but uh, how did that, how did you prepare Brandon for this, this such these diverse things? Like, I mean, this, this thing in Scandinavia, especially is interesting to me where, you know, it's so long. It's, I mean, I know what these kind of things are generally like. I've never done anything like that, but just what, yeah, like how do you even classify something like that? Do you just go all in on, on base training? Did you do any specificity? Um, Definitely lots of, lots of base training, like lots of, lots of zone, t- you know, technically zone, you know, zone two stuff, lots of hiking, uh, but also trail running. Uh, Brandon did a fair bit of bouldering um, and also some free some free climbing in there as well because those were the, you know, the main skills that were going to be necessary for that one. The lead up to the Scandinavian Traverse, that was, that was a whole other animal because Brandon didn't have access to uh, regular life. He was working um, and spent a good chunk of time in Antarctica before that. So, that was totally different, you know, trying to figure out he was working super long days. So we had to count for the time that he was on his feet working um, and the limited time that he had available to train, but also count taking into account the fatigue involved when he's working super long days at, on a physical job. So um, trying to, you know, find the sort of the, the minimum maximum that we could fit in. So Brendan, how you were in McMurdo Station? Yep. In the months, what six months leading up to this Arctic traverse? So, yeah, how do you? First of all, what the heck were you doing down there? And second of all, how did you how did you train? Like actually train? How, what was the logistics? Yeah, the I I had a, a contract to go to McMurdo Station, and that was the decision point for me to actually do this Scandinavia trip in the first place. I I knew it was something I wanted to do, but I didn't know when the contract ended in February, like mid say mid February ish. And so I knew that the timing would line up perfectly to then go to Scandinavia. And I was working down there as a carpenter supporting, you know, there's two components. One is we'll call it the, the town handyman, Someone's like, my window won't shut or my door fell off or someone, Frankie, kicked a hole in that ceiling. So we had to go fix those things. And 
I, my job in particular was more focused on field support. So uh, I spent most of the season preparing for a new structure install at a remote science camp called Cape Crozier, where we then were transported out via helicopter. And I spent three weeks out there basically digging holes into permafrost with a pigmatic, which I wouldn't really wish on anyone, <laughs> but it was cool, actually. Very unusual so, training. Because yeah, you're like trying to set it, like get down so we can put in a foundation or get up, up get down. What, what, is that what's going on? Like, I'm just trying to, so, and what's a pigmatic? Is that like a hydraulic, like chip, like giant hammer or something? I don't know even what that is. I wish it was a big mechanical tool, but instead it was my weak little arms and back that had to put oh, the okay. elbow grease It doesn't it. sound like it's any kind of matic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, name is, the name is misleading. Also, how many times did Frankie kick a hole into the building? That's what I want to know. It's, <laughs> that was used as an example. Did people frequently down there kick holes into, <laughs> into buildings? Yeah, you know, there's there's a limited amount of things that you can do in McMurdo. <laughs> they don't let you like venture out too much, so you have to get creative and maybe have a couple white claws and then some things happen down <laughs> in that station, you know what I mean? So, Steve to answer your question, the digging these holes, so we had footers, they're wood wood-based footers because it doesn't rain. So they're not necessarily going to rot like they would in Seattle. And we, they were approximately two feet by two feet. And the, the foundation for these footers, we'll call them is, is on a slope, say five or 10 degrees. So we had to clear the, and it was a lot of volcanic rock. This was at a, this is a top four largest penguin colonies in the world. There are deli penguins and there's penguin scientists that hang out there during the austral summer to do all things penguin related. And we're building them a new modest mobile home size structure. This okay, was so you got to like hang out with the penguins and like knock holes in the, in the ground. That sounds all right. And fix holes in ceilings. And fix holes <laughs> in ceilings. Yeah, that's 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 kind of it. Everything at Cape Crozier is is heli supported. There's no overland uh, way to get there. That's not ridiculous because you have, it's a heavily Ross Island is heavily glaciated and it's not feasible. So we didn't have, we didn't have like a backhoe or an excavator or anything to, to dig holes. So we just had hand tools and the pigmatic is one side. It looks kind of like a, it's like a flat bill, like a, like a beak of a platypus uh, or like a spade, a hoe that you go and use in your yard. And the other side is pointy. Like it's kind of like a fireman's ax that on that pointy side. And that was the side that we used to dig into the permafrost. So the first six inches was say volcanic rock and it would scrape off. But after that, it was, it was just a, an assortment of sand, gravel, cobbles, everything you could imagine solidified together with ice. So we had to dig down to create flat, flat, a flat base for these footers to go onto. Yeah. And so Chantel, again, like as a coach, you've got this guy out there, he's presumably offline for three weeks. Mm -hmm. 
and you know he's going to be doing a bunch of manual labor with some with some bizarre tool and how do you like how do you coach around that yeah it was tough because communication was pretty limited there were times where uh he was reachable by phone so we could you know have a phone call and kind of talk about the upcoming weeks and uh make a bit of a plan but you can imagine being in a remote place like this and it's also a pretty extreme environment sometimes like it wouldn't be at parts of the time not safe to go and exercise outdoors because of the cold so that would mean brandon would have to go on a treadmill what did you call it brandon you had a name for the treadmill yeah, there are two two gyms, well, small gyms in McMurdo, and the one of the gyms had the cardio equipment, stationary bikes, and treadmills, and that was called the Gerbil Gym. That's right, the Gerbil Gym. I couldn't remember the name. So, the Brand- other, <laughs> yeah, real quick, the other one I like to had all the free weights and a little yoga studio type thing, and bench press and squats, and that one was called the Beef Palace. The Beef Palace and the Gerbil Gym. So he had access to those. However, because he's there sort of in a work camp environment, there's a cafeteria and the cafeteria only serves meals at a certain time. So that would mean Brandon would have, you know, he would finish work. He would have a small gap of time between dinner, uh, between finishing work and dinner time. And then there would be a small window of time after dinner and bed. But you can't really you know, train well on a full stomach. So we'd have to try to see like, what can we cram into that little bit of time before dinner so that he could then eat and get a good rest. So a lot of that was on in the gerbil gym on the treadmill. Um, There were a few other times we could, you know, do some things outside like he did. uh, Everest did uh, an observation tower but also like being out there, it's permafrost. You can't, uh, small things that we think about here that we can't do there is you can't pee outside because it's not going to go anywhere. So you got to, you know, if you either you don't go, you go indoors or you go in a bottle and you carry it around. So, you know, some uh, interesting logistical things we had to think about there. So it was either treadmill, time on the treadmill, um, some strength training, mobility work. Mobility work was really key because Brandon was already doing a lot of physical work and he's had um, a few little injuries in the past. We want to make sure that everything was working well. So we had to keep up with uh, Brandon's PT exercises and some other mobility stuff. And really a lot of the f- the physical labor t- made up a-, a good chunk of what Brandon did for his training. Uh, The other piece was, you know, making sure that really he was eating enough and trying to prioritize rest, not just cramming in a whole ton of additional work on his one and a half days off or not at all days off sometimes. Yeah. And to clarify, the work there required was on a standard week throughout the season is six days, 60 hours. And when I was uh, three weeks at Cape Crozier, it was seven days a week. And the job, there's no PTO. We had a couple holidays, say at like Thanksgiving and New Year's, but it was very consistent work. And I had to first get to, Chantel told me, you know, when we were talking about the training, like, how do we set this up 
to for me to be successful, optimize success for the Scandinavia trip. But it, Chantel said, Brandon, just wait. Don't don't overthink it. Don't stress about it. Just get to McMurdo. Spend the first couple of weeks, get adjusted, get in your new living situation, see what the food is like, see what the feeding times are like, see how much, like we'll call it a training load that the that the actual carpentry, like how physical it is. Are you standing there with the drill or are you carrying lumber around all day? And then from there, we can help, you know, we can work to optimize your time without overloading you or for, without you getting burned out mentally. And it sounds like it worked. Like when you left for Scandinavia, did you feel ready or were you a little bit like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go? Well, we did have to cram in uh, some kite skiing lessons <laughs> between Antarctica and the trip because Brandon was planning to use a kite on this expedition. And, um, you know, I also like to, to pick on Brandon when he brings up these new modalities that, um, well, Brandon, you better get some proficiency with these and get the help of an expert. So he had a crash course in kiting beforehand um, so that he could use the kite where uh, where it was possible to use it to help him uh, move a little bit quicker where possible on the on the traverse. We had to cram that in. How long? Did, how long did that take? Is that like how long did it take to learn to kite ski or whatever it's called? Is that like a day? Is that like a week? What? What is it? What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, when you say learn, does that mean to like get really good at it or to like? to be able to launch a kite and not have it drag you on the ground for 10 miles or launch the kite into the trees. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I can relate <laughs> this to climbing. Okay. Like five, six proficiency in kiting. How long does that take? Uh, I would say for me, have being a proficient skier was a day. I think most people, if you can ski or snowboard, it's a day. So I took two lessons I had after Antarctica and before I flew to Norway, I had 10 days in the United States. I spent five days at my home base in Seattle with family, getting all my gear organized. And then I spent five days in Salt Lake City. Two of those days, I had a really good instructor. And at the end of those two days, I was able to put the kite out, clear the lines, make sure they're not tangled, you know, anchor the kite in the snow, launch the kite, fly around a bit. I could also kite upwind. There was a point where I was kiting upwind and uphill at the same time, which was huge. It was very difficult for me having just started. And then I could like, I could eject the kite, pack it up and put it away. Okay. So now after a thousand miles, are you an expert? Are you like a 512 kiter now? I, yeah. I, I feel, I mean, and, and the thing is I could have spent the whole, I, I learned to kite at, in like the most ideal setting at a strawberry reservoir, which is Southeast of Salt Lake. We went out with, I went out with the instructor. There was ideal winds, blue skies, no trees, no exposed rock. It was flat like it and, and no sled, no sled. Right. Right. And and then I go to Scandinavia and none of those things ever happened. There was blizzards and flat light. <laughs> yeah. Like in mountain valleys, <laughs> no I was falling. Conditions. I would fall into just random holes that from from windblown snow and like river drainages. 
So was the kite useful or not? It sounds like it wasn't actually. Like, was it a liability or? A... <laughs> yeah, it was a huge liability. It's it would be it would be, it would have been much safer in a way for me to just walk, and it would have been a much faster trip if I would have just brought Nordic cross country skis, left the kite at home, and my big Alpine touring setup at home. But the the point of it wasn't to set some sort of speed record. This was an entire self-designed route, and I wanted to be able to learn the kiting component because I thought it was interesting. Like all these other things I did in my life early on was was because I was interested in them. And I had other aspirations and dreams of applying the kite to other parts of the world later. Okay, so you... Brandon also became proficient at um, using a dry bag and... And some ski poles to kite with as well. Wait, so you like launch the dry bag as a as a kite and with your ski poles, and then it drags you along? I don't, I don't get that. You yeah, that. there was when I got halfway through the trip, I was in a town called Abisko in north, it's the furthest northern town in Sweden. Wait, Nabisco, like the cookies? A a Abisko. Abisko, okay. Yeah, okay. and right when. I, when I was half, so at that point, there was already dry ground in certain areas. Like I was dragging my sled up, like through the streets and stuff to get to where I was staying. And it, there was a couple days of rain. I took a few days to relax there. And then there's a huge lake. There was a 30 mile lake section after Abisko to go east and continue on the route. Well, all of the snow had melted off of the top of the lake. And so it was, but it was, ice was still, I was told by locals, it was still two feet thick. So it was plenty thick for me. Um, and I didn't know it's one of these things like, can you kite on a lake that is just like contoured glossy ice? I didn't know. I didn't have anyone I could ask if this was a good idea or not. I just had to brainstorm in my head how that would work. And I came to the conclusion that it was a bad idea. Even if I was able to get the kite up, it would have been out of control. And if I fell over, I wouldn't have been able to use the kite, bring it down towards the ground, and then bring the kite back up towards the noon position in an aggressive manner to then pull me back onto my feet, which is what you do when it's snowy. So I got onto the lake and I did it in the middle of the night because that was the wind window for the next several days. And the, the it was windy. And, I, and, and the wind, it was a strong westerly wind and I was going more or less due east. And I'm like, I have to use this wind somehow. There has to be a way. And I took the skins off my skis. It's pitch black. The ice is translucent. I can see all the cracks and bubbles. It was actually terrifying. It was raining out. I could barely see anything and I took my skins off and, and just used my poles and pressed forward and I would glide for like 20 feet just with the wind at my back. It was near frictionless. And I'm like, well, I wonder if there's something I could use. And I had for my, for my negative 40 sleeping bag, I had like a 55 liter dry bag. So I took it out. And I used a carabiner and clipped it onto the ends, like the wrist loops on my hiking poles. And I held my hiking poles out and there were, I, you know, this was a 30 mile section. 
So I probably did like five miles with the dry bag just flopping and flopping wildly in front of me. And then the wind died down a little bit. So the dry bag wasn't really working. I had a max speed of like 10 miles per hour with the dry bag. And I'm like, well, I need. Yeah, that's impressive. I need more. I need more surface area of material to to do this. The only other thing I could think of that I had, but I was really hesitant to use, was my tent. <laughs> and and so I got it out, and <laughs> it's still dark out. So maybe sun's rising, and I held the tent in front of me. It's a black diamond El Dorado, so it has the vents at the two vents at the top, triangle vents. And I grabbed one of the kind of vent covers and then I, with my left hand and then with my right hand, the tent door was open and I grabbed like the upper, the, the apex of the zipper point, we'll call it, and then held it in front of me so that the wind could go through the door of the tent and inflate it like a balloon. But then the tent door was flapping around and I was terrified. Holding the tent in front of me, it was almost touching the ice. And my skis are right in front of me with their metal edges. And I didn't have a lot of control. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and the wind would gust. No. I, well, it's not quite I, what I a tent's designed it, it, for. It was one of fair. these like really epic moments where I knew I was already very, this was 40 days in or something, 35 days. And I was pretty exhausted. And I, there was very little snow in the surrounding areas south facing and north facing slopes and i was it was a really like low dark point and this section is 180 miles or 190 miles and i'm like i need to to get this 30 mile section with the wind so i just held the tent out and there's like pooling water on top of the ice and like a couple you know every once in a while like pools of just like slush that felt like play-doh under the skis and I just held the tent out rigid, having not really used my arms other than with the ski poles, probably just about gave myself a hernia in the process. And I was terrified. I was just going to shred my tent with my skis <laughs> as a gust came by. And, or sometimes it would be really gusty. And, and I, I also anchored the one of the, um, what do you call it? The corner of the tent. There's that loop that you can put in a snow stake or a stake into the ground. I took a, a carabiner and hooked onto that and like tethered it to my climbing harness that I was wearing. That's what I used with the snow kite as well. So in case I let go of the tent, it wouldn't fly way into the abyss of the night. It, yeah. But I made it 30 miles. And then I got to the east end of the lake and I was, it was like 8 or 9 a.m. or something. I'd been out all night, totally wrecked. And I just sat down on my sled and put my knee, my head on my knees and passed out for like 20 minutes, woke up and both my hands were completely numb. And then I set up camp and took a nap. So Brandon, during a journey like this, you were out there on your own for a long time with very little contact with the outside world. Um, I can imagine there's a lot of hard moments to work through, just, you know, dealing with challenges like you just explained uh, loneliness, repetitive food, cold, discomfort. How do you work through those things? Do you have specific strategies that that you, you that you can say you sort of use throughout the trip, um, or 
do you just kind of have some magical capability to manage discomfort that some of us haven't mastered yet? Yeah, that's that's another really good question. And I feel like this one's more difficult for me to answer than a lot of the other ones. I don't have some magic formula that I use to get through these things. And as I'm sitting here a couple of months after the trip ended, I think back and I ask myself the same thing. Like, how was I able to do that? It sounds pretty difficult and in a lot of different ways. I do think that I come back to oftentimes uh, Reinhold, a mess, Reinhold Messner quote, where he says something to the effect of, when you stop, the fear is growing. And when you're moving, the fear is going down. And I, I really like that. It's simple. And I, I just found that there were times where I would be stopped in the middle of the day and I would just feel like anxiety and the pressure and spring is coming and I don't have much time and I need to get moving, but I'm so tired. And then I would just force myself to get back up. I was very militant with myself, which is also kind of ties in with some of the darker moments. And I, in retrospect, I realized that I had a lot of negative self-talk out there, even though it wasn't like calling myself bad words. It was, it's very subtle and that it took that militant approach and in, in my discipline to, to get this done but I would just keep moving. And every day it felt like I barely chipped off a section of the, the entire trip. It was like another 1% basically, maybe one and a half percent of the length, like good big pat on the back for you. But I, I think I just really wanted it. I wanted the experience. The There were so many... And I, and I struggle to explain the trip to people sometimes because even now in this podcast, I feel like a lot of it's been focused on how like difficult it was or maybe like, you know, I wasn't adequately prepared because I was doing carpentry before in a remote location. But the reality is that this trip is was life changing for me. It was exactly what I wanted and I could not have imagined the types of experiences that I would have really learning to kite, seeing the transformation of the landscapes and all of the different types of terrain, all the people that I encountered, the conversations that I had meeting the, all the indigenous Sami reindeer herders up in the tundra and inadvertently followed the winter reindeer migration pattern were all things that I didn't I, I knew that they'd be part of the trip maybe, but they as they came to fruition and blossomed, it was absolutely electric. And those are some of the things that kept me going. The dry bagging and tent sailing across the lake. And there was a lot of small victories along the way. I think those things helped keep me going on the trip and just knowing that I was doing this for myself and I had this, this dream or this vision and I stuck with it. I think that's one thing, Brandon, that I always find fascinating about you. You know, when you go on these journeys that 
when you communicate things to me, you rarely communicate that you're having a low moment. What you do share with me, though, are like the amazing experiences, like check out the northern lights that I saw, or I met this reindeer hunter, or I had this experience, or I had this amazing revelation or thought. And in all the times I've known you, I've never had a message that's negative. And I think that's part of your success is that even though you you recognize that those things are there, but you don't dwell on them too long. You're like, what's the little fish in Finding Nemo? Just keep swimming. You just keep swimming. You just keep, you just keep going. And um, I think that's just such a great uh, thing that I, as a coach, have have taken away from you is your ability to appreciate the s- small amazing things and the big amazing things and that you don't focus on the things that other people might think are uncomfortable or challenging. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I agree with that. Although sometimes the things in my mind feel like negative, maybe they're not quite described to you in that manner. I I also want to note that I designed this trip as as a structure to kind of break me. I didn't go into this thinking that I would be successful getting from point A to point B. I designed this to to have an experience and to go for as long as I could until my body or my mind or my equipment failed. And having that opportunity to embrace the isolation was, the whole thing was terrifying. Like I didn't really know how to snow kite going into it. I didn't have like the the most optimal buffet of training grounds available to me going into it. And it was 10 times longer duration and distance than my previous, my one and only ski traverse. It was horrifying. And the first day I was out there, I was like shaking in my little Alpine boots. Like, what am I getting myself into? And just giving myself, just basically going into this type of trip, similar to the 50 peaks thing. I I thought there was like a 1% chance that I would actually do it. But just accepting that the point of it isn't for this grand success, but the point of it is to to open up an arena to operate in for understanding yourself and your position in this world to contemplate life and death and what's worth living for and what's worth dying for to think about my relationships and my past and in my future. And as I'm moving throughout the day, it's a lot of, I'll call it meditation. It's a lot of zone one, zone two, just skinning and dragging a heavy sled behind me. And it gave my mind an opportunity to just explore its inner workings in ways that is not possible to do in society. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That's really beautifully said. And I, I think that it goes back. I wanted to connect back to an idea you said earlier about, you know, the negative self-talk and being militant with yourself because I've experienced that myself and I've always wondered and I'm curious where where you feel this is right now for you and it may change over time but 
you know, how necessary is that? Is that, is that what do you have to, is that what it takes? Like, is that the price of admission or is there a more gentle way to uh, achieve this objective? As you said, you, you know, you said, I think to, you designed this to break yourself, I think you said. So is that, can you, are these things so at odds with one another, like being human, exploring your own humanity and your values as you've described? And can you do that and, you know, and truly be gentle with yourself? Or does it actually require this kind of mindset that you've described? Yeah, I think that uh, I want to clarify the the breaking myself phrase is a bit extreme. I, I wanted to set this up to be able to to push myself beyond anywhere that I ha- physically and mentally beyond anything that I had experienced before, and going in with such a low probability of we'll call it the conventional success, I. I had to push very hard over a long period of time to get there. And I wanted to explore where that took my mind. And especially after being in Antarctica, that was the most socially inundated I had ever been in my life. And I was horrified about the concept of going to the most remote part of Europe alone in winter for up to three months. And I do think, Steve, you're right. In some sense, with a trip like this, it's no longer, it goes out of, if I've run 100 miles before, going into it, run another 100 miler, like you can take it, you can be more chill about it. You have a cutoff time. So you have 30 hours to do it and you've done it in like 24 hours before. So you have some grace, you know, some flexibility there with how you handle yourself. But in this case, I knew the whole time that I was racing spring and I was racing my European visa cutoff. And I wanted desperately to to finish the trip. And two thirds of the way through, I wanted to stop. Like I really, at that point, I had seen the full spectrum of what I would see throughout the trip. And I knew that it would mostly be grinding tundra miles after that flat, bleak and, and difficult. And the snow conditions were only going to get worse, but I knew that I really had two options, either suck it up and continue or quit and even if I quit then, no one in my life would have been like, oh, Brandon's a little wimpy dude because he only did 50 days in the Arctic by himself. I, I wouldn't, I knew I wouldn't like get any you know, flack for that. But the other option was flying back to Seattle, staying, you know, going back and readjusting to society, sitting on the couch in my parents' living room, staring out the window and contemplating like why I quit when I could have kept going. And that sounded like the least desirable of the two options. Yeah. But also I would say not a lot of people have the ability. And I think one of the key abilities to persevering when things are hard is being able to empathize with possible future abstract options, like what you're 
describing, right? And most people just focus on the suffering that they're feeling and anything is better than that at that point. And then, then they get to the living room on the TV and the window a few weeks later and they're like, oh, why did I quit? You know, but, you know, they were not able to project themselves into that theoretical future and say, oh, yeah, I don't want to be there. I want to, you know, I'd rather stay here. And that's a, that's a key piece of of self-reflection that I think could be a lot really useful to people. And while you're talking, I just had to look up one of my favorite lines of poetry that I think speaks to this. And it's a William Blake line from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And you probably have heard it, but I'll just recite it here. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. And I feel like these adventures are cleansing the doors of perception. I think that's actually what you're doing. You know, like that's, that's what these, you know, quests are actually about is, you know, trying to understand, like you said, you, you, you put it, you mentioned a few of the things like understanding yourself and your place in the world, understanding your relationship relationships past present future those things it's infinite yeah yeah and i think that the another interesting thing is when i decided to keep going and i and i thought that the the outlook for the rest of the trip was very bleak and in terms of what i would experience or see i would i was continuously surprised with the types of scenery and visuals that I was encountering. And as I continued to watch the landscape change, there was 24 hours of daylight and just out in the tundra with the cloudy skies. And there's just a hole in the, in the clouds, very small. And the sun beams through like it's coming from heaven and shining on the earth and it's 2 a.m. And I just stand there completely in awe. And what turned out to be the most difficult part of the trip physically and mentally and also the most horrifying was the transition of winter to spring but it also turned out to be the most magnificent beautiful and inspiring part of the trip for me like seeing what the actual tundra looked like seeing the rivers open up even if I had to like wade through them and drag my sled through like flooding it it was uh, watching, seeing how the lake ice melted and at the peripheral of the lake, the ice collapses and there's like a four foot deep section of water. I have to try to like navigate around to get onto the more solid lake ice there. The, you know, the birds, there was a lot more birds. I started seeing insects. It was, it was like, I was watching what was this, this, in encased winter landscape turn into something that was bubbling with life. And I, yeah, I, the infinite. Yeah. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't imagine the trip having not gone through that. And it, it was in, when I finished, I took a bus to the airport um, and there was the birch trees that I'd seen the entire time that were they're thin and they're just skeletons, no trees. They don't make any sounds because 
there's nothing on them to like rub against each other or 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 shake in the wind and then the birch trees were they had leaves and it was just watching it was like being able to witness the process of of life and the ebbs and flows you know in, in you know some philosophical sense that we have in our own lives as well and i think that was a very humbling and <clears throat> meaningful part of the trip for me i think that's a great place to uh to leave our listeners thinking about the seasons of life and the 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 joy of witnessing that i i can so relate you know to your experiences and can remember some of my own that were somehow similar you brought me back to some of my own experiences in the mountains of actually not the climbing itself being the most interesting thing but you know the northern lights or the the, the view of the tundra or those kinds of things so it's really powerful and that's really what I think, you know, motivates so many of us at Uphill Athlete is, you know, this connecting with ourselves so we can better connect with others and connect with our natural environment and yeah, live more fully, simply. You know, it's not about a podium or a gold medal or a bronze medal or any of that. It's about what you have just described. So really beautifully done. Thank you for that. Yeah. I will, yeah, I would just add, I mean, I've been on some solo quests, we'll say, and I've had to stop. One in particular I'm thinking of where I had to stop. And I was so sad because I just wanted to know what the rest of the journey could be. Uh, and that it wasn't that I didn't accomplish this FKT or whatever, is that I wanted to know what came next. So I applaud you for for taking that moment and being like, yes, I will continue. And I, I later on got to do it and got to see in a different way what was next. And it was incredible. Um, so that's just, that's such a great point of, yeah, have, have the vision to see um, what can come and also that it doesn't just turn into the same slog. It, it's, it's ever evolving. It's never what we imagine it to be. Tomorrow is never what we imagine it to be. Um, yeah. Are, th are there any other last big takeaways um, from this journey that you would like to share before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think that doing a trip like this and, you know, ultimately working through some of the, the difficult times, it gives me a it instills a deep sense of limitlessness, which is maybe a double-edged sword because I can, you know, maybe contemplate doing crazier things in the future. But I think it expands in with, you know, the people, the types of people that are tuned in to what Uphill Athlete does and what they project. It doesn't matter if you're running your first marathon or trail 100 mile or climbing Denali for the first time or doing a trip like what I'm doing. You're resetting your horizons. You're working towards a goal. And whether you're successful or not, I think that the there's a lot of positive outcomes that will precipitate on all aspects of your life. And 
those are things, Alyssa, like you're saying, you can't necessarily foresee. And it allows you to re, what do you call it? To reestablish what your perceived limitations are. So when you run your first marathon and you think 50 miles is outrageous, but then you think about it and you step up to the plate, you train and you attempt it, you don't know if you're going to cross the finish line, but you show up anyways. And whether you finish or not, it doesn't matter. The fact is that you are, you are reestablishing a new ceiling for yourself and that will translate to your relationships and your work and and how you approach your life if you have the right angle with your mentality to apply it. And I think many people that, you know, climbing or running or whatever that are doing this um, find that. And that's why being involved with these types of efforts is so gripping and borderline addicting. Totally agree. I mean, I always think of a, a major part of when I'm training for something is actually, I just call it like the mind expander, where you start and you think five miles is a long way to run. And then all of a sudden you look back and it's not all of a sudden, it's very subtle. And you go, oh yeah, now 10 miles is my easy run. And so I always just think of like I'm about to go do a, a six day race in Wales. And I think about how your mind expands to give you the capability to, to at least put yourself in the position to take it on whether or not you finish. That's a whole other thing, but then it might shrink back a little bit as you're like, I can't, like you said at the beginning, I can't believe I did that. I sometimes don't know how I did it, but every time that expansion is maybe a little bit easier and maybe just a bit further. And I always love that part of both the expansion, but also realizing that you don't have to live at the, the ultimate stretch all the time. You can come back because the journey back outwards is just as enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, I agree. And, and one last thing I will say is, that this trip and the Yellowstone ski trip and also the 50 peaks have given me a de more developed outlook for pursuing the things that I want to pursue and made me in COVID made me realize that I didn't have to wait around for structured events or go to like, we'll call them business mountains where there's a lot of beta that's available in it. And I think a lot of people can do this as well. And once you, before I saw everything that I did as like around like the, the framework of an event and, and now I can just open up the world map and I, I call it like spinning the, spinning the globe, like a basketball and anywhere in the world I want to go, if it's desert or jungle or Arctic or tundra or whatever it is. I feel like I've developed the skills and the confidence to be able to design my own future, which is, it's a, it's an ongoing evolution. That's been very fruitful for me opening up to the world. I'll say. That's fantastic. So if people 
want to see what adventures you've done and also what you are planning to do in the future where's the best place to find you and contact you i have an instagram you can search my name or look at uh, search the wild ned which has underscores the underscore wild underscore ned or i have a website that is joyofendurance.com. You do have a great name for this. <laughs> Thank you. Brandon also uh, wrote a great blog uh, on the on Uphill, Uphill Athlete website not so long ago about unconventional training in unconventional places. So if you want to dig into uh, how Brandon has trained to prepare while he's been living in far-flung locations like Bhutan and Antarctica, that's a good... Uh, fun read as well i think we we could keep talking we may very well put out another episode on this because there's still so many parts of it that i want to dig into uh but for now thank you for listening to the uphill athlete podcast if you could rate review and subscribe that helps us to bring amazing people like brandon uh to your ears and introduce uh his views to more people as I, I hope a lot of more people adapt these ideas of how we move through the world and through the mountains. Yes. And I would also add that for at least having maybe walked a, a different, but maybe a little, uh, being a couple generations older than you, Brandon, that, you know, you, you also learn the, the lessons of failure along the way, like you'll, you will find those limits and you will find the hum, humility in, you know, not completing things. And that's also part of it. There is the, the story of Icarus is a classic legend for a reason. So we all have been there. Uh, if we fly this high for long enough and, uh, yeah, that's, that's nothing greater than humility to, to teach you that, you know, this sort of age old lesson of, what got you here doesn't always get you there. And that's something that I think, as you said, has many applications throughout life. So are you, are you, Steve, are you, are you saying you want me to fail on my next trip? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just putting it out there. So like you can't, uh, so you can't fail because now we've like, because otherwise if we don't mention it, you know, it's bad, bad luck. We have to, we have to set the. We have to. We have to. We have not. It's not. And it's not failure. Like there's no. There is no failure. Actually. Like, yeah. There's no good joke. or bad. It's just. It's just learning. Exactly. Right? And this was a joke I used to have with my climbing partners because I remember coming. We came down. We walked down from a peak in Peru once, and the, the guys. We met some people, and they're really excited. They're like, "Did you succeed?" And. And we were like, well, depends on what you mean by succeed. What is success? So like <laughs> immediately just like, they were like, wait, wait, like they were completely confused. But, you know, it's true. There is no success. There is no failure. You know, there is no spoon, however, whatever, whatever quip you want to use. But yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah. The, the success is just engaging in the process. And that's yeah. obviously what you're doing in the most meaningful way possible and in, a, in an incredibly authentic way as well, which is nice to see. So appreciate that. Appreciate yeah. you doing what you do and sharing it with us. So. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I do feel like the, whether in endurance efforts or not other areas of life professionally or 
whatever else the we'll call them like quote unquote failures or where I'm not successful at setting out to do what I wanted to, I tend to learn more than when I do get to the finish line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had plenty of those. We just haven't focused on yeah, those we haven't, we just this haven't talk. talked about any of those. <laughs> That's the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just one, but a community. Together, we are a pill athlete. Thank you for joining us, Brandon, and thank you for listening.